0: Why are we a bit skeptical about the potential to learn entrepreneurship at business school? Because we believe that better business thinking is available via Austrian economics. Herr Beiland is here to guide us.
1: This is the Economics for Entrepreneurs podcast. Entrepreneurs are economic heroes. They improve others' lives with preferred products and services, innovation, and value. We offer you the knowledge and tools to make your entrepreneurial journey a successful one by building a beautiful business. Now here's your host, Hunter Hastings.
0: Hi, Hunter Hastings here. A couple of weeks ago in episode 82 with David Hurst, we established how business schools content is derivative of classical economics and its world of equilibrium and mathematical models. Consequently, it's not applicable to the dynamic real-world situations that entrepreneurs deal with every day. Today, we're going to continue and dig deeper into the theme of Austrian school versus business school and the dichotomy of equilibrium versus dynamics. We'll learn that it is the idea and the implementation of entrepreneurship that marks the distinction between the two. We'll talk a little bit about the origin story of business schools and how they transitioned from a trade school approach, helping young people to learn a trade for a career, to become a creature of academia. Academia means research and theory, often borrowed from other parts of the university, like economics, but also psychology and sociology. We question its applicability to real-life entrepreneurship. Austrianism, on the other hand, strives to understand how markets really work. We know that markets are individuals, individual consumers, individual entrepreneurs, individual transactions. We build from there. We know that the operative variables are not symbols in models and equations, but empathy and customer understanding on the part of the entrepreneur and subjectivity and felt experiences on the part of the customer. There's emotion and inconsistency and idiosyncratic ways of thinking on the customer's part and intuition and experimentation on the entrepreneur's part. A qualitative rather than quantitative approach is called for. Humanism versus metrics. Adaptiveness versus planning. So many insights follow from Austrian understanding. One of them is that learning entrepreneurship can be accomplished via interaction with customers in the market. Knowledge comes from acting and learning, observing customer behavior in response to a new product or new distribution method or a design change or a price change or a promotion or an advertising campaign, and trying to deduce the changing customer values behind the changing behavior. Action and interaction and customer feedback are the modes of learning. To guide us through all this, we have Pear Byland with us today. As you know, Peer teaches economics and entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State University and is the author of several books explaining Austrian economic theory, including the problem of production and the seen, the unseen, and the unrealized. He's a brilliant, brilliant economist, and his rigorous logic is the greatest advertisement it is possible to have for the Austrian way of thinking. Pair, welcome to Economics for Entrepreneurs.
2: Thanks for having me again, Hunter.
0: It's always great to have you here, and we're continuing our series on business school fallacies. We started with David Hurst a couple of weeks ago, and we're advancing a little bit further. And as I emphasize, we're not trying to be disrespectful to business schools. We're trying to point out that there may be some better thinking that's more helpful in practical terms for business people, and especially entrepreneurs, more applicable is the term that you used, I think. And then you raised the question of the applicability of business school teachings and strategies. Uh, You talked about simplistic models and fixed boundaries for industries and static thinking in various places. Um, But before we go there, you you said something interesting to me, which was that business schools may be struggling with an existential problem. So that sounds like a good place to, uh, to start. Tell us about that.
2: Well, it's absolutely a good place to start because if, I mean, if, you, if you don't have a, a, an existence or reason to exist, then obviously you have a huge problem. Um, the, I think the problem is sort of historical, that the, the business schools were started as uh, practice-oriented schools where you, you learn a trade. Um, and then what is the gold standard in academia is really research. Uh, and you can't really do research on practice because research is supposed to lead to theory that explains something but if you're just doing practice then that's sort of a um, a, a huge problem and and what business schools did was really take the the sort of real scholarship uh, disciplines and and their theories and apply them um, so they helped future managers I mean the I guess the the Best example would be the MBA program where where you're trying to educate next generation of managers for big corporations. And what they're doing is, is basically taking economics and sociology and psychology and things like that and developing models and rules of thumb that you can use when you become a manager. Um, I mean, this is a little problematic since many of these disciplines – are pretty static in how they view the world, and and their models and theories are very static. And we've talked many times about economics, how mainstream economics is is basically about equilibrium, um, and anything but equilibrium is a problem. Um, and if you have those ideas, and then you try to run a business based off of equilibrium, then obviously you you have <laughs> a, a huge problem on your hands because. You're not going to experience any equilibrium whatsoever when you're running a business.
0: Yeah, In fact, uh, dynamic is the, the goal rather than equilibrium, right? Always changing, always responding to marketplace. So marketplace exactly. signals.
2: I mean, exactly. Either you respond to the changes that happen that are not inside your business or you try to bring about changes that you can benefit from that are, are good for your business. So everything is about change. Whereas the theories tend to be about the opposite. It's just static.
0: Well, let's go from there to some of the specifics, Pair, that you had mentioned. We talked about business school models. And I think the implication is that you've called them simplistic, or at least some of them. Um, I know there are plenty of them. I did some research on, on models and strategic frameworks and came up with hundreds of them that the business schools teach. So there's no shortage of them. Um, but are they simplistic because of this this uh, tr- attempt to emulate equilibrium? In a sense, yes. I
2: mean, a model is supposed to be a simplification, so that's not really a problem in itself. It, it is a problem when you have such far-reaching assumptions that change um, how you see the world, and especially if if you do not apply these models with sort of a dy- dynamic uh, mindset. Uh, so the five forces model is sort of one of those really famous models where where you look at your uh, strategic positioning, how you position your business with respect to uh, suppliers and customers and and substitutes and, and things like that. So you, you um, identify those five stakeholder groups and then you're supposed to, in, in a sense, you're assuming that they are what they are and then you can quickly and easily define where they are. And then on that map that you've created, you're supposed to find the best position for your business. And of course, this is exactly the opposite of this dynamic world uh, that that businesses usually are in. Uh, and it, it's based on some assumption about being static and, and these stakeholders not changing their positions and not reacting to you and so forth. But the, of course, they are reacting to it. And if there is a gap, someone else will attempt to uh, fill that gap and maybe is already in the process of doing so. So you, focusing too much on the model will, will actually cause problems for you. It's, it's it's potentially a good rule of thumb to understand what is going on and to sort of identify the different components of the dynamism of the market. But it's not... Um, it's not a model to simply apply in, in the business because that will cause problems.
0: Yeah, and I do want to emphasize that you and I and our Austrian school applications are not against models per se. We have our own Austrian business model, which is a framework. It's not um, something to follow mechanically. But the fourth element of the Austrian business model we call value agility, which is what you just said. You're constantly reacting. You're constantly offering new uh, value propositions to the marketplace. You're reading the effects. It's it's dynamic, ongoing. It never stops. And I think that's our point of view about the market, as opposed to, as you say, the the static component of five forces.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it's it's about finding how you can contribute in that ongoing market process and how you can find a way to contribute value and facilitate value for consumers. And I mean, that's, that's what you do as an entrepreneur, and that's what you're supposed to do as a, a business as well. It's not really about positioning yourself with respect to these stakeholders already in the market, but it's about creating value for consumers.
0: Here's a question. What were you taught in business school that turned out to be wrong in the real world? What concepts and language didn't align with your real world experiences as a business owner or as a customer? Tweet us. Our address is at E4EPOD. That's the letter E, the number four, the letter E, P O D. Or message us on Facebook. Our page is economics for business. Or just send me an email at hunter at Mises.org. That's M I S E S dot O R G. We'd love to hear your thoughts and put your observations and experiences front and center on an upcoming episode of the podcast. And now back to our conversation. The other uh, specific piece of terminology you used was was strategy, and uh, you had said at one point in time, it tends to be, at business school, the strategy tends to be an upside down version of bad economics. Is that is that related to the same phenomenon of pursuing a, equilibrium?
2: It is, in a sense. Um, I mean, it's it's really based off of the basic economic model of perfect competition, where where no business really makes any economic profit because everything is efficient and, and there, are no, there are no wrinkles, there are no additional costs, there is nothing undiscovered, so you know everything. Uh, and, and in that situation, you sort of maximize the uses of all the resources available in the present. Um, this is, of course, not where you want to be as a business, so a strategy is, in, in a sense, a way to figure out how to create inefficiencies. So it, it, within the general equilibrium, there is no profit, but as a business, you want to make profits, which means you have to somehow figure out how to how to in, insert or, or add inefficiencies to that system. So that's what I mean by having it upside down, that you're using the same models, or at least did from the beginning with supply and demand and everything is um, in equilibrium. But then you're fi- trying to figure out through differentiation, through different uh, measures, through using branding and patent and whatnot else, you're trying to figure out how to make the market inefficient, and then you capture the profit that is available because the market is inefficient. And this, is, of course, a, a rather ridiculous way of viewing the economy and the market, because as we know, as Austrians, it is First of all, a process there. It is not in equilibrium ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then causing inefficiencies to create profit. You, you have, first of all, completely uh, excluded the co- consumer who is not part of your equation at all. But instead, it's about breaking free from the competition. And it's, again, positioning yourself with respect to what they are doing and make sure to tear us under the uh, the equilibrium that is – that is that. By assumption was there and because you create this inefficiency you can capture the profits if you have positioned yourself correctly whereas what we would teach is that now the economy is in is constantly in movement it's constantly in flux and the, your your task as a business owner as an entrepreneur is to figure out how to Serve- consumers the best way possible, you can always create more value, so it's not about inefficiencies it's really about efficiencies it's about creating more value with whatever resources are available so it in a sense it's they they, they go exactly the wrong direction because the starting point is equilibrium, which is a flawed assumption
0: right and it, you also use a an interesting piece of terminology. you said sometimes the business schools think of. Value propositions as one-way positioning, and we like to think of it more as as co-creation of value, or facilitation of value. Is that is that part of the same distinction you're making?
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, in a sense, we're talking about how how businesses are positioning with only uh, the market the way it is, right? And they're trying to exploit whatever whatever gaps there are, whatever opportunities there are already. Given the consumers, given consumers' uh, wants and, and needs and all that, whereas what we're trying to figure out is how to better serve consumers. Um, and and it's, it's really about very often in these models to push your, your goods out to as many as possible and beat the competition doing so. It's not really about the discovery of how to serve the consumer better which could be a completely different product. It could be a completely different way of doing it. It's about the experience that the consumer uh, expects from your offering and not about beating the competition necessarily.
0: And another example of that static thinking or an extension of it is this idea of industries that have boundaries. So uh, they want entrepreneurs to think they're competing within an industry and they've got to arrange their their um, efforts to compete within the boundaries of that industry, whereas I hear you saying there's no such thing as those boundaries. We shouldn't even think that way.
2: Well, exactly. I mean, an in industry—it—it it, it seems like it's an obvious thing, and we talk about, say, the the computer industry, or we talk about healthcare and things like that. And those are rules of thumb that we can use, but they're usually based on the consumer goods already being offered. Um, So when, when there is an innovation, it's usually by a business that is considered to be in an industry, but the innovation might not actually be in that industry. And that uh, that innovation might create something completely new, like the smartphone or the, the the two in one surface kind of thing to, to uh, compete with laptops and, and, and all of these things. And, And the point is really that the industry doesn't matter all that much. It might, might matter in terms of organizing and having like a trade or trade or an organization or an association with others doing similar things. Or, but those are all about mature markets uh, where you have already found that these products seem to serve consumers in a certain way, and we produce them already. And all the competitors are are trying to cut costs and and position themselves in, in a sense. Um, Whereas this is not really what what is going on at all. Entrepreneurs are trying to serve consumers in a new way. So they are not limited to a specific industry. They can they can maybe span several industries or they can break completely new ground and, and disrupt existing industries, just like Uber did with uh, taxi cab companies and things like that. Um, and at the end of the day, they're really competing for consumers' dollars. So if they're offering something... Uh, that consumers consider to be very valuable, they are out-competing businesses who are not in the same industry, but can be in a an adjacent industry, as, co- as it's called, or something completely else. Because all businesses are always competing for consumers' dollars. They're not competing for who is going to produce the best widget that this consumer is going to buy. You know, the consumer's decision is... Will I buy anything at all? Does this product uh, satisfy my wants? Does it provide me with enough value for my hard-earned money? Or can I get more value elsewhere? Or do I think that maybe I can make more, uh, get more value for my dollars if I save them and buy something tomorrow or a year from now instead? And it's in this situation with the consumer's sort of calculus of the value versus cost, um, that goes into the exchange where the entrepreneur positions him or herself, the providing value, for, facilitating value for the consumer. If you do that in a very good way and there's the consumer finds no better way of satisfying their wants, then you win and you get to you get to sell to them. But that means you have outcompeted basically any other offering in the world. This consumer has chosen your offering, the experience that you a uh, promise to deliver over all other experiences that this consumer is considering as potential other ways of spending their cash.
1: A quick note. Did you know that we provide supplemental materials for each podcast? Listening to and understanding the key takeaways from our expert guests helps you think better about building a more beautiful business taking direct action and implementing these strategies is when the real work begins take a concrete immediate step to implementing a better business model today by downloading the show notes and business tool we've created for this episode visit mises.org/e4epod that's m i s e s .org/e the number 4 e P-O-D, and click on today's episode. Now, back to our interview.
0: Yeah, that kind of consumer centricity, I think, leads us to some, some very penetrating ideas and, and good places for entrepreneurs to do their thinking. You mentioned the word disrupt, and I, I don't like to use that word because it sounds kind of Defensive, defensive of an, of an industry or defensive of a market share. I think it came out of business school. Clayton Christensen, the now late Clayton Christensen, um, had that theory and the innovator's dilemma, I think. But it's it's like Schumpeter's creative destruction. It's, it's the destruction part as opposed to the creative part. And I think you're trying to emphasize the creative part. So um, is is there such a thing as disruption or, or are we... You you have this thought of the islands of specialization that can be joined to many different industries. They don't disrupt any of them. They bring new creativity to them.
2: Well, exactly. It's not really about whether you disrupt an industry that exists or not. I mean, <clears throat> for, for Uber, to use that example again, it doesn't really matter for Uber or any ride-sharing service whether they disrupted taxicab companies or not, whether they changed that industry. That's completely beside the point. What they're trying to do is simply facilitate value for consumers and get paid for it and make ends meet. And we can discuss whether they do that. But but I mean, they're trying to supply a service and they're trying to capture some of that value. Um, whether an industry that existed beforehand is disrupted or not, that's, why would they care about that? It doesn't really matter. Of course, they might consider it beforehand, before they enter, so that they do not... Uh, compete head-to-head with very successful businesses or something like that. But other than that, it's really about the consumer experience. And and that is why I, I emphasize the island of specialization that you mentioned, that it's, it's really about finding a new way of doing something or finding uh, new things to do that are of great, great value or greater value for consumers. Um, it doesn't really matter what other businesses are doing your only role as an entrepreneur is to provide more value to facilitate more value for consumers and if you can do that then it doesn't really matter what other uh, businesses are already doing so in that sense uh, disruption is a necessary part of what you're doing it's sort of a means to to the end that you will, if you're successful you are disrupting the other producers but what you're really doing is is creating uh, a new way of 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 satisfying wants for consumers and we can call it creative destruction um maybe creative replacement would be better that you're mm-hmm. you're sort of replacing businesses that are already out there and supplying consumers with with goods and services, but then you have a different idea so and you do it better, so you provide them with or facilitate greater value for the consumers. And then, of course, they will choose you over them. And if enough consumers do that, then there is no space really for uh, this incumbent. So they will go out of business or they will cl- choose to close their doors or renew themselves or whatever it is that they might do in, in order to respond. But they're not creating enough value in the marketplace. So they shouldn't be there And 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 use resources that are precious that we could use in other ways to potentially provide more value to consumers.
0: Yeah. So it's creative advancement, I think, uh, creative improvement rather than creative disruption or or destruction. But one more foundational premise pair that underlies all of this, I think from an Austrian economic standpoint is our focus and understanding of entrepreneurship, the role of entrepreneurship in this dynamism. Uh, entrepreneurs don't exist to invade or destroy or disrupt industries. They they exist to create new product services and solutions that consumers want, as you just explained. So do the business schools misunderstand entrepreneurship, or you called some of their models Entrepreneurless, if that's a word, um, how do they how do they get that wrong?
2: Well, I mean, if entrepreneurless is not a word, then then I would like to coin it. So I think <laughs> it, it, it it captures uh, quite a bit of what is going on. And I mean, all of economics is in a sense entrepreneurless, unfortunately. Um, I I mean, entrepreneurship has become a rather uh, fast growing field in business schools. That, over the past few decades, and and I think that is that is appropriate and that's proper. Um, I think historically and sort of traditionally in business schools, it started with an application of economics uh, and psychology onto businesses, um, and this, of course, as we talked about before, starting at the wrong end. And then if if you go through the sort of sociology of the departments and disciplines. Uh, applying economics and psychology became management uh and the study of management and i mean it started with uh taylor's uh scientific uh management mm-hmm. where you you timed uh, people's different movements and you calculated how many how many times they should be able to squat down and lift up this little thing on the factory floor uh, and things like that and then from uh management strategy was created as a, sort of was an offshoot from management where where they realized that it was not simply about managing the resources inside the business, but it was also the strategic uh, decision-making and positioning the, your business with respect to other businesses, but still talking about the existing businesses only and, and on this sort of business landscape. Um, and then entrepreneurship became sort of an offshoot from strategy. So it's it's sort of the most recent uh child discipline uh in in the business school but and, and i guess in a sense it's sort of also treated as such so uh strategy scholars are not rarely uh part of management departments and entrepreneurship scholars are part of the strategy group um and if there is a strategy department then usually entrepreneurship scholars are part of that uh department And I'm fortunate to be at a university where uh, entrepreneurship is its own department. Uh, So we can, we can do actual entrepreneurship stuff, but we're still sort of treated as, as, a uh, a a younger sibling in a sense, whereas we as Austrians, of course, would say, no, 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 you can't, you don't have any market whatsoever unless you have entrepreneurship. And that's at the very core. And we would also argue that, uh, an existing business, it's not going to last unless it renews itself and uh, uses entrepreneurship and attempts to meet consumers by providing them with even greater value in, in the near future. Because you, you cannot uh, in an actual market just sit back and and, and sort of uh, just let the profits flow to you because you have already established your position. That's not how it How it ever works, that's how people tend to think of it when how big business uh, is assumed to have a lot of market power and things like that. But that market power is always uh, temporary, uh, if there is any at all. Uh, And and these big businesses can always topple and and crumble uh, as soon as there's an entrepreneur with a different view and provides more value to consumers. Consumers are not loyal to a, a business just because they're big. Uh, consumers uh, try to satisfy their own wants and and they have limited cash. So they will do as as much as they can with their their cash, of course.
0: So the business schools are running these uh, incubators and simulations and entrepreneurship competitions. You see them publicized a lot. It seems like all the universities and business schools are doing it. What's your point of view about those? Well, there there are are well there are several different comments I could
2: I have on, on, on this, but in a sense they're they're good in terms of the education uh of the next generation of entrepreneurs, in the sense that they get to do hands-on things and try out what they've been taught in the classroom and things like that. So so they, they get some, some sort of feedback and they get to um implement their ideas. So so that's that's positive. On the other hand it's very structured and and it's based off of very strange ideas like uh, incubators tend to uh be based on the idea of protectionism where uh where you have the the idea that if if a a country just closes its borders from competition and and let their uh, small and inefficient businesses grow big then they can lower the, the trade barriers afterwards, and then those businesses can compete with other businesses. Um, of course, this is complete nonsense because that's not how you do it at all. What you're doing is just propping up businesses that are wasting resources. And in a sense, incubators are, are the same, uh, that you're providing all these services to, uh, to new businesses and sort of protecting them, shielding them uh, to, to allow them to grow bigger so that they can then compete but that's not really how you how you how you do entrepreneurship you you need to start with value and if you can facilitate enough value it doesn't matter how small you are um, so the problem very often is is they they're solving the wrong problems mm-hmm. if if that makes sense uh the same thing with these business plan competitions that um it's great to have a business plan and think through everything you're doing before you actually do it um, but that's not a market test it's you t- it t- typically is a panel um, an experienced panel so 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 they have have a lot of of good thoughts and good experience on on how to run a business and and how to be successful and things like that but but the real market test and what you really need to accomplish with your business plan is to get consumers and your customers to buy your products and to have the price right to have the value much higher than the price and and maintain your production costs much lower than the price that you are able to charge and that's really after you have the business plan so i mean in a sense what i tell my students is that yeah, a business plan is great because you you get to think through everything and make sure that you haven't missed anything obvious. But in real life, there are really just two kinds of people who want to see your business plan. And one is the banker and the other is your professor. Um, and you might add uh, business plan competition panels <laughs> to that too. But but no consumers, consumer will ask you, oh, well, your product looks great, looks great, and the, I'm willing to pay that price, but what does your business plan look like? I mean, they mm-hmm. don't care. <laughs> they only care about the product and, and your offering and whether they trust it and whether they can see any value in it. Uh, and the business plan is before you actually start anything. So it's, it's a way of satisfying your professor, and it's a way of satisfying the banker so that you get a loan and can finance starting the business. It's a, a way of thinking through everything too, but you haven't done anything yet. That's, that's, that's the problem of it.
0: Right. The other thing that it strikes me about some of the business school examples that they use uh, is that they elevate the idea of the heroic and charismatic entrepreneur as opposed to examining the value proposition to the, to the consumer. And that seems to me a little bit like what you said, focusing on the who of entrepreneurship as opposed to the what, which is the, the wrong end to look at.
2: Yeah, it is. Because, I mean, it's not really about who you are. Uh, it's about what you do. Um, and and everything that you do in, in the marketplace is really, uh, it's evaluated after the fact. Um, it's really the same when you get a job too, which I also tell my students that if you can provide value in your job, you will never lose your job and you will probably get promoted or get a better job somewhere else or or whatever it is. But you have to provide value. If you don't do that, then then you're worthless. Uh, and and you, you have not earned your salary. Um, and it doesn't matter how long and hard you work on something. It's the result that matters. And of course, part of the reason I tell them this is because I always have a, a number of students at the end of the semester claiming that they should have a higher grade because they worked so hard. Uh, so I make sure to tell them in the beginning of the semester that it's not how hard you work, it's what you actually accomplish. Um, but that's also true in everything you do, that if you are in the marketplace and you're producing things, no one cares who you are. That might be a way of getting noticed to begin with, but what people want is your offering. They don't care who you are or, or what you might have done before, or how hard you worked or anything like that. Um they want to get a product or a service and, and that's it. That, that is what you're offering. And if that takes you a lot of time and effort, you probably should do something else.
0: Well, let's, let's flip the coin a little bit to consumers. We've mentioned them from time to time in this discussion of entrepreneurship and, and business models, um, but I think you're also implying that the business schools don't get the right view of the consumers the, you mentioned a problem about substitute products and services, and we talked about industry boundaries, Austrians always think of the dynamic viewpoint that consumers are continuously changing their preferences and their value scales. Uh, and it's a real challenge, as you said, to respond to this. So do, do business schools tend to miss that about consumers? For example, they, they might talk about segments and and markets from a consumer standpoint as opposed to this constant change in value scales yes in a
2: sense they do i mean they they're sort of assuming that things will not change much at least not in the foreseeable future so you can exploit this and you can get some data on how, what what things are actually like and then and then you can work uh, your way based off of that data whereas we as austrians we know that yeah consumers have value scales sure but you ask them about something and they will always compare with their options. So if if you offer them a product, they might say, oh, I want this, I want this so bad and I'm going to buy it no matter the the price. Um, And then the next day they might say, well, I don't want that. It's not because that want is not satisfied, but because they've seen something else that's more valuable to them. So they're responding to and making decisions and changing their value scales uh, in response to the offerings that they see and the offerings that they understand, that's why communication is so important too. Um, and in that world, talking about the economy and the market in terms of segments and, and things like that, those are again important and and potentially productive rules of thumb, but they're not actually how it works. Right? So um, you can do a a market analysis. And figure out exactly where people stand in terms of whatever industry you, you want to enter, say, um, and how they value different things. But then the next day, if there's an entrepreneur with a new type of offering that makes these people change their minds, then your research was was not worth anything at all because people respond to and they change their their. Their behavior and they change their value scales. They change practically everything in response to what they see and what they understand. Um, and I mean, it, to, to again use the smartphone as an example. Uh, before the smartphone, people behaved in a certain way, and we used the phone in a certain way. We yeah you know, we texted and we called each other, but we didn't do a whole lot more. And we had. Uh, paper maps that we folded out and and all these things right so and we had to stop all the time to look at the map when we were on road trips Um, with the smartphone which completely changed our behavior and we we communicate a lot with other people through the smartphone we shop through the smartphone while we're doing other things Um, and if you try to position yourself uh, with respect to flip phones say just before the first iphone and you had a a business plan for the next 10 years, then you would be completely screwed. Um, So it's looking at the psychology, trying to figure out what wants do people have and what are their most urgent needs and things like that. It sort of misses the point from an entrepreneurship point of view. And from from our perspective, it's pretty much uh, worthless information because if there is another product or another service or something like that that is offered, that these consumers respond to and that these consumers really value, then whatever you found before is going to have changed just because the consumers responded to this new product or service.
0: And that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about the work that you and, and Dr. Mark Packard are doing in this idea of value as experience, that the value is something experienced by the consumer that, it can't be objective. It can't be measured quantitatively. It's emotional. It's idiosyncratic. As you say, it's always changing. And they're discovering the experience that can be had with an iPhone, the individual experience. And they're the ones who are creating value in that sense. That, that's an exciting idea.
2: Yeah, exactly. And in a sense it's the entrepreneurs' job to provide the tools and sort of the vision for how to use the tools, but whether consumer actually uses the tools in that way, that's that's out of your control anyway. You you can't determine that, but you can communicate how to use something, right? So uh we we tend to think of entrepreneurs coming up with new ideas as simply replacing a, a previous product, but that's not really uh what they're doing. I mean it's easier uh to communicate to consumers Uh, that this is a new way of doing X, what you did before. Like Netflix is a new way of going to the theater without having to get into the car. You can do it from your own home. Um, So it's much more convenient or something like that. But it's a different experience. So people still go to the theater uh, to watch movies there, even though they have Netflix. Um, And some people who really like movies, they do both a lot and others... They do neither and some do one, but not the other. Um, and, and those different experiences, that is what we value as consumers. And of course we value them differently too. And in different situations, we value them differently as well. So sometimes we we can, if we're having a first date, say we might go to the movie theater, uh, with our girl or boy, um. And then if we have a fifth or a tenth date, we might prefer Netflix instead because it gives you all these other opportunities uh, that are not available in the movie theaters and, and whatever it is. But all, all of these things play into how you value things at different times and different situations. And and it, it is the full experience, but contingent on what you want to get out of it and what where you where you are in your life right now.
0: Yeah, and those ideas are central to uh, what we're trying to develop in this podcast and elsewhere, focusing on value, and a business school might think about value as shareholder value or or other forms of value, but we are heavily focused on this value as experience. I think that's that's truly distinctive. What yeah, you- it is,
2: and it's. I, th- I think one of the problems here for for us in education and research is that value facilitation is very difficult to study mm-hmm. uh, and and you're leaving it open too so even if you would not do it as research but instead try to teach uh, students to facilitate value for others or well, whether there is actually value or not well yeah, that that remains to be seen because you cannot know all you can do is try to figure out uh, whether this is probable from your perspective with everything you know about the economy, one thing, and people, the other thing, and you combine those two sort of areas of knowledge, and you think that this is really um, a good opportunity, and this is has good potential in being valuable to enough people, and then you you set out to make it happen, but you can't really do anything else. The consumer is still sovereign. The consumer will still de- de- decide whether there is value or whether they can see value, whether they can create value with what you're offering.
0: Yeah, And I think that's related to something you said at Mises University earlier this year that successful entrepreneurs are often Austrian and they don't know it and or they're subconsciously uh, aware of it perhaps that I took to mean that that's the way of learning. You, you attempt to create value and you learn whether or not you did, but you can't, you can't know it in advance. And one of our previous guests, David Hurst, talked about that as um, acting one's way to better thinking, i.e. entrepreneurship is acting first, and then you can step back and, and do the theory and the thinking. What, are those two related? Can people be... Uh, successful entrepreneurs by action, and that's what you mean by they're subconsciously Austrian.
2: Well, yes, what I, what I meant was that if you have any experience and having exposed yourself to how the market works, then you will be much more Austrian than those who have not. Uh, I still think that in order to have a chance to be successful as an entrepreneur, you need to think through the logic of your offering and what type of person in what type of situation would value your offering and is able to create a lot of value out of it um, so try to figure that out of course and, and not having a a an offering that is sort of contradictory or that doesn't make any sense to you because that's very hard to sell to begin with and it's very hard for the consumer to make sense of but i i i think i i, I see with uh experienced entrepreneurs how they tend to think about things differently and they tend to almost uh, intuitively exclude certain um, ways of approaching uh, the market and certain types of products, maybe certain uh, distribution channels even and things like that, that they have learned through experience that this doesn't really work or this is really hard or and there's a better way. And since Austrian economics um, uncovers how the market actually works and the mechanisms uh, in the economy based off of of this consumer sovereignty and entrepreneurs as those who serve consumers and provide them with offerings that consumers can accept or not, um, Austrian economics explains actually how it actually works. So uh, experienced entrepreneurs will get pretty close to uh, understanding the marketplace as an entrepreneurially driven process and not as an equilibrium system. Uh, And they will understand that consumers respond to certain things, not because of what psychologists have found in terms of their ranking of their objective ranking of needs or something like that, but rather as a situational thing Um, And they will also realize that all they can do is really provide something, an offering uh, to consumers and communicate to them what this offering means and could mean in their lives. But whether consumers accept it or not, it's not really something that the entrepreneur can do much about. That is still uh, completely the consumer's decision. Uh, And it doesn't matter if, if it's. Uh, say what's just one of the examples that is often used to try to rebut this that with some someone who's uh starving to death or or really really thirsty or something um you're exploiting that person uh, because they can't choose anything else but there's always a choice you can always uh you can always choose not not to buy something you can always choose to negotiate a little more or buy it a little sooner and and things like that and It's it's really what what matters here is the sovereignty of the consumer and realizing that that is the case, that the consumer will, based on whatever variables are of importance to him or her, will uh, evaluate and assess what what value they can get from your offering compared to all the other alternatives that they see that they value, and then they will pick whatever is best for them.
0: Good. Well. Let's uh, sum up there, Pear. Thank you very much for that. You've emphasized the, the core elements of consumer sovereignty and their subjective view of value. And I think everything else stems from that. So we're going to keep trying to communicate these ideas in ways that are valuable for entrepreneurs. So we really appreciate you helping us with, with uh, that goal. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Hunter.
1: Economics for Entrepreneurs is a production of the Mises Institute. To explore more content like this, visit mises.org. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org. For more from Hunter Hastings, check out hunterhastings.com.